going to read from Mark 15, 25 to 39, which I'm not sure if it has a bit of Latin, Hebrew, whatever, so you'll bear with me if it doesn't come out according to the way it should sound. Okay. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled incense at him, insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on the staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely, surely this man was the son of God. Father God, I just bring Tom to you now. Father, I ask that you would give him a double anointing of your spirit on us. Double anointing. Lord, and I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear from you. Lord, and I pray that Tom would now feel your peace, presence, and power out from him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There we go. There we go. Right. Nearly there. Matthew, Mark. If you see me dash away this morning, after, uh, immediately after preaching, it's because I will be in immense amounts of trouble if I do not make it uh, back to Maidstone by about 12 o'clock.
because Nick is currently in an NCT class learning all sorts of really important things about parenting and I'm here. Uh, and I need to get there because the session that I will miss if I don't is all about changing nappies. And I'm sure the parents in the room are nodding. The wives are going, oh, yes, you do need to be there. And hopefully the husbands are going, yeah, it's important. Good luck. So when you see me run away, that's why. It's nothing to do with how scary you all are. Although, believe me, you are terrifying. Uh, no, I jest. Okay, before I pick up on the passage, I do quickly want to talk about Palm Sunday, because it is Palm Sunday, in case you weren't aware. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter Sunday, or Resurrection Sunday, as it's sometimes called, and it basically is the start of, uh, if you like, the passion narrative, which is a phrase that's given to the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem all the way up to his death and subsequent resurrection. Uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem in and of itself wasn't actually necessarily such an odd thing. Jesus has already been to Jerusalem at least once or twice in his life, but there was something very, very significant about his coming to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And uh, as we all know, I'm sure people greeted Jesus by waving palm leaves and throwing down uh, their, their coats and their jackets, essentially, uh, so that he, he had something to walk on because the roads would have been dirty. And the thing I just want to pick up on really quickly, something that I learned at college, was this. If you had a map of Jerusalem and you took a look at the entrance that Jesus used for Palm Sunday, you have a long road, and right at the end of that road is essentially a T-junction. And if you wanted to go to the palace where Herod would sit, and where you would also eventually find the Roman governance in the city, you would go in one direction on this T-junction. I think it was right, I think, but don't quote me on that one. If you wanted to go to the temple, you would go the other way. Now, this is really important because when Jesus arrives, people have picked up that he might be the Messiah, the Savior, the one who is going to come to free them. This is a group of people who are under oppression, ruled over by the Romans, who have not had a significant prophet in 400 years. And Jesus finally turns up. They're expecting him to go towards the palace when he arrives so that he can begin the revolution, the rebellion. Instead, the first thing he does when he arrives in Jerusalem is he turns all of that on its head and he goes to the temple to offer worship and praise to God. And that's really significant because, of course, Jesus also said that he would tear down the temple and in three days build it back up, a quote that we see quoted back at him on the cross. And that brings us to the cross, a devastating moment for Jesus' followers, those that saw him as this coming hero, the saviour of the Jews, dying on a cross. Devastating moment for them. And I want to start by asking a rhetorical question, which I will provide a, uh, a cheeky answer to at the end of this. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so has God. So far are we from our transgressions. 
okay, as far as the east is from the west. And my question is, how far is the east from the west? Something to think about there. And so we turn to the cross. The cross is arguably the most significant moment in theological history. You could say the resurrection is more important, and there's definitely an argument for that, absolutely. I would say that the two go hand in hand, personally. I wouldn't compare the two. I would say they're all part of one thing. But the cross is the most significant moment, certainly in the Christian faith worldwide. So far, that a number of different people in church history have talked about the cross and focused on the cross. Spurgeon himself said that the cross is the center of our system. It's why we have so many hymns that focus on the cross. The famous words of Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross. There is an expectation on us as evangelical Christians that we focus on and think about the cross. It is not something to ignore. Now, I'm not saying we completely ignore it, we pretend it's not there. I mean, we have crosses up to remind us of the importance of the cross in the church right now. But it's something we're supposed to ponder, think about, and reflect on. The cross, what it is, the importance that it has. It is central to our theology, to our faith, and to our lives as Christians. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the cross. I'm not going to get too graphic, don't worry. But I am going to deliver some truths about what it was like to be crucified, uh, as far as we can be aware. The cross was the culmination of Roman uh, torture knowledge. The Romans were very... Let's just point it out. Oh, every time. <laughs> every time. The cross was the culmination of Roman torture knowledge. The Romans were great at torturing people amongst many other things. It was an extreme ordeal and a horrifying one. For a start, the nails that were used uh, were probably about nine inches long, roughly. And uh, when they put the nails through, a lot of the times we think that they put them through the hand like this, which is very painful, but that wouldn't be the case because if they put them through the hand, when they put all of the person's weight, all that would happen is the nail would just through and they would fall off of the cross. They'd actually put them through the wrist. And they would do it in such a way that it broke bone, caught some of the nerves, but didn't cut any of the major arteries in your wrists. The reason being, they didn't want you to die quickly. They were experts at this kind of anatomical knowledge. Really, really painful stuff. Uh, Jesus had a crown of thorns. Now, the crown that we have up there actually is not a bad representation of what it would have been. The thorns would have been incredibly long. When they put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, it wouldn't have rested. They would have forced it down to the point where some of the thorns may even have broken parts of the skull. Horrible stuff, again. Not only that, but anybody that was crucified often had a beating beforehand, and we know that Jesus was beaten. We know that he was whipped. That was all part of the process, it wasn't an add-on. Because what would happen is just as your back is starting to heal from the wounds, you would be put on not a nice smooth polished cross like that, but a rough piece of wood, 
As soon as you moved, those wounds would reopen while you're hanging there on the cross. Brutal, brutal stuff. When people died from crucifixion, it was normally days after the process, not hours, days. And the, ver the ways they died were incredibly varied, but one of the most common ones was they actually just stopped breathing. And the reason they stopped breathing is because as your hands are up like this, your body is completely stretched out, and you would have to pull yourself up by those wrist bits nailed onto the cross. You would have to pull yourself up to breathe before you then sunk back down. And it was actually more about breathing out than breathing in that was the problem. So most people died through asphyxiation, loss of breath. They finally just couldn't, they didn't have the strength to do it anymore. The reason I want to talk about that, or have just spoken about that, is not to make people feel sick or disgusted, although I do think it's important to understand what Jesus went through physically, but to highlight that there is a physical suffering in what Jesus went through on the cross. I also want to highlight that some of what Jesus went through was incredibly different or out of the ordinary from what would have been seen. Jesus goes through an incredible physical suffering. He's also referred to as a king, and he's referred to six times between uh, when he's seen by Pilate and when he's crucified, six times Mark says something about him being referred to as a king. Three of them were by Pilate himself, as we've already heard. One of them was by a group of soldiers, but two of them happened while Jesus was on the cross. And this all happens in the space of a couple of chapters, in what is actually quite a short gospel. Mark is known as one of the quickest gospels. The word immediately, if you haven't noticed this before, you won't be able to unnotice it now. The word immediately turns up in Mark all the time. And most of the start of Mark's chapters and stories don't sort of start with one day Jesus was doing this. It's often, and then Jesus did this. And then his followers went here. It's like, it's like hard to keep up with what's going on. It's fast. But Mark makes the point of in a short space of time referring to Jesus as king six times. Now this is mostly done in mockery. Oh, the king of the Jews. Ha <laughs> um, in ha the, In the passage itself, uh, they began to call out to him, hail, oh no, that's the soldiers, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, here we go. So you are going to destroy the temple, build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. He saved others, he can't save himself. And somewhere in the passage they say, here's the king of the Jews. Ah, let this Messiah, they should put inverted commas in there, let this Messiah, this king. That's how it should be read. They're mocking Jesus. So not only is Jesus going through an incredibly physically painful experience, but emotionally, his very kingship, his very core, his identity is being challenged by the people down watching this go on. It's not enough that he's in agony, but he's being mocked incessantly as well. Just before this passage, we read about the fact that people were casting lots for his clothes. He was up on the cross naked. When we see pictures of Jesus on the cross, he often has something in front of him. That's for modesty's sake. Jesus would have been stark naked on that cross. And right in front of him, they're rolling dice for his clothes. 
mocking him and saying, oh yeah, the king of the Jews. The irony being, of course, he is the king of the Jews. Jennifer picked up a little bit on this last week. The ironic thing here is these are the people, the people mocking him were the priests, primarily. They should have known better. They were trained and spent their entire lives studying who the Messiah would be so that they could keep an eye out for him to welcome him in. They should have known better. When they went to the trial, they should not have been at the trial. They were breaching some of their own religious laws. And then when they come to the cross here, they shouldn't have been at the cross. They should have been at the temple leading prayers because that's the time that, uh, when Jesus was uh, crucified. And part of the reason why Mark talks about the time is it's actually significant. The Jewish leaders shouldn't have been there in the first place. They should have been leading worship of God at the temple, and they weren't. Instead, they came out to mock God on the cross by saying he's God but not meaning it. A huge irony. They ask for a miracle. If you are the Messiah, come down off that cross. Go on, do it, then we'll believe. Whether they meant that or not, I don't think it's the case, because three days later, Jesus performs the biggest and most significant miracle of his entire ministry. He doesn't come off the cross, he rises from the dead. They still don't believe. And I don't believe if Jesus had exercised the right to come down off of that cross, which he did have, I don't think they would have believed. I still don't think they would have. There is an immense amount of irony in this passage. I want to focus on, it's a combination of Aramaic and Hebrew daft, in answer to your question, probably. We're not entirely sure, actually, about the language of this moment. Eloi, Eloi, uh, lama sabachthani. We're not entirely sure. It's, uh, it could be Aramaic, or it could be Hebrew, or it could be a combination of both. We really don't know. But Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everyone on the ground goes, he's calling Elijah. What's he doing? It's actually a fair, um, almost we could say a fair assumption of theirs that he's calling Elijah because Eloi, or Eloi, is very, very similar to Eli, which would have been a shorthand version of Elijah. But Jesus doesn't need to call Elijah because he's already met with Elijah. When he had the transfiguration, that moment when he went to pray and he went up the mountain and he met Moses and he met Elijah whilst on that mountain. Not that they would know that. But it wasn't uncommon for people in trouble and distress to call out to Elijah. He was kind of like, although they didn't have this sort of concept, he was a bit like a patron saint of those in trouble and in need. It wouldn't be uncommon for uh, a member of the Jewish faith to call out, Elijah, help me. A strange concept when we think that they should only be praying to the one God, Yahweh. But Jesus is not crying out to Elijah. He's crying out to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Up until this moment, as far as I am aware, Jesus has never really referred to God the Father simply as my God. 
In fact, often he uses the word Abba, which is Aramaic for daddy, basically. He talks about God as a father figure and a close father figure, one of familiarity. Now here on the cross, suddenly that changes. And in his most desperate moment, perhaps, he calls out, my God, my God. And then asks the question, why have you forsaken me? Other parts of the Bible, other gospel narratives talk about God turning his back on Jesus, turning away. So Jesus could no longer see him. At this moment, Jesus' close communication with God is broken, shattered. So not only is Jesus going through the most physically taxing thing he will ever go through, not only emotionally is he being mocked and scorned by the very people that he loves and is there to save, but spiritually, his deep connection that he had with his dad is broken. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what happens at that moment? Why? Well, the answer's simple. The cup of God's wrath that Jesus saw when he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane was poured out in full in that moment on Jesus. All of God's hatred, all of God's holiness in comparison to sin was poured upon Jesus who up until this moment had not known the anguish of sin, the damage of sin. He was born without sin. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus. No sin in his life at all up until this moment and suddenly God pours it all on him. Not just one little sin, not just a lifetime of sin, but every single lifetime. Your lifetime, my lifetime, my future child's lifetime, my grandparents' lifetime, a country's lifetime, the world's lifetime, all of it, all of the sin poured upon Jesus in that moment. We were born with sin. We were affected by sin from the moment that we were born. There's a lot of deep theological discussion about what that looks like, why that is. The point is, we are all sinful. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says it in Romans. So we don't know any different. We didn't know any different, but Jesus did. Jesus knew what it was like to be without sin. And suddenly, all of it was poured upon him in this one dramatic moment. The heavens themselves reacted to this event. The sky turned dark three hours before. Again, not going to get into the discussions about what happened, but there is actually a chance that there was a solar eclipse right at the moment that the Bible says there was one. It looks like that's the case. But whatever, the whole land turned dark. Creation responding to what's going on in front of them. So Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This moment's unique in Mark because unlike in other Gospels, this is the only time in Mark that we hear Jesus speak while he's on the cross. The only time. In other times we hear about Jesus talking to uh, his disciples. We hear Jesus hand over the responsibility for looking after Mary, his mother, as well. Uh, and various other things. He talks to the thief on the cross. 
But in Mark, Mark, the immediate, quick, I just want to get to the point gospel, Mark just has this one moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is no longer connected to the Father. He's experiencing the spiritual agony of sin. There's an interesting thing about this quote, and I don't think it's incidental. I don't think that Jesus cried this cry out purely because that was what his heart wanted him to. Jesus knew the scriptures back to front. He was immensely knowledgeable about the content of the scriptures. And Psalm 22 starts with this very similar lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The focus in Psalm 22 is more about us forsaking God as it happens. I don't think that's an accident. Jesus quotes this, showing his reliance on God and his trust still in the scriptures. He, def- he, d- did, he shows, he demonstrates his faith. It would have been easy for Jesus in that moment when God turned his back on him and covered him in sin to say, oh, whatever, just, just kill me. But no, he still refers to God as my God and quotes, likely quotes scripture. The interesting thing about the scripture he quotes is that Psalm 22 ends in victory. It ends in a triumph. Could Jesus be hinting at what's to come even as he's on the cross? Maybe. Shortly after this moment, they offer him up um, some wine vinegar because that's basically what they would have had to drink. Um, Part of the reason that they would have offered him that up is um, wine vinegar is actually incredibly hydrating. Uh, and would have been better for Jesus to drink potentially in that moment, although it would have tasted horrible, to hydrate him so that he can keep going because they want this torture to last. And Jesus likely refuses it because at that moment Mark says that Jesus breathed his last. But somehow Jesus managed to cry out. And this is also another significant moment. It's something that we can easily read over, but Jesus with a loud cry dies. And in, again, in other gospel passages, it's, it is finished, is the cry that we often uh, put to this moment. It is finished. Mark doesn't worry about the content of that. He just focuses on the fact that Jesus cries out loud. This is odd, because by this moment, by this time, Jesus has been on the cross for about nine hours. He hasn't had any sleep beforehand. He's been beaten. He's gone straight from his trial to being beaten and whipped, to carrying the, um, when he carried the cross, it wouldn't have actually been the whole cross, it would have been the cross beam that his arms would have gone on, trying to carry that before having to hand it over to someone else because he was physically unable to. He would have been exhausted. The idea that Jesus somehow had the strength to shout anything at this moment is actually staggering. And it's part of the reason why it's thought that the centurion recognized him as a special individual. I'll come on to that in a moment. How could he have had that strength? It seems that he gives up his spirit. Again, other gospel passages say he gives up his spirit and he dies. Jesus doesn't linger. Once the job of the cross is done, he dies. That wrath has been poured out on him, job done. And he breathes his last and he dies. Other Bible passages at this point say there was an earthquake. The ground shook. The earth responded to the death of Jesus, part of the Trinity, Son of God. Mark focuses on one very significant moment, the tearing of the curtain 
in the temple. As Jesus dies, the temple, this holy place, curtain that separates the most holy of holies, where God was said to reside, rips in two, top to bottom. The way that the temple was laid out is you'd have a courtyard, open area, and anybody really could go to the courtyard. Then you had a curtain, and inside you had a holy place. This was reserved for priests mostly. Beyond that you had another curtain, and this is the curtain in question, which would separate the holy place from the most holy of holies, where God himself resides. You were only allowed to go in there once a year, one high priest, to offer a sacrifice only once a year and one person. And the, the curtain that separates this place tears from top to bottom. We don't actually have a lot of details about this curtain. There's not that much in, um, in the Torah that describes how it should have been made. But from other historians like Josephus, who was an early Jewish um, historian, we can get the idea that it was probably about four inches thick, about the width of a hand, okay? So all that material became four inches thick. Not only that, but we think it was somewhere between 60 to 80 feet tall, okay? To put that into context, I am just over six foot tall. That means that the curtain's height was something like 10 of me, or a bit more, stood on top of each other. This could not have been done by a human. For a start, I don't know if anyone's tried to rip fabric by hand, but once it gets beyond a certain thickness, it's, it's impossible, let alone four inches. Then it's ripped from the top downwards, unless they had an immensely large ladder, which they would have had to sneak through the courtyard, sneak through the holy place past all the priests, climb up the ladder, and then somehow with superhuman strength rip this apart. There is no way that a human being did this. It was an act of God, and a significant one. That holy place, that most holy of holies, was accessible to everyone. No more barrier, nothing in the way. The moment that Jesus died, God opened up heaven. And this is very much like what happened when Jesus began his ministry when he was baptized. When Jesus was baptized, as he comes out of the water, the Bible says that the heavens opened and something like a dove flew down and you heard God's voice, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This time it's a bit different. On earth, something has torn open, a link between earth and heaven, not a momentary thing, but a permanent thing. We don't hear the voice of God. His wrath has been poured out on Jesus. Instead, God is dealing with man, humans, at this moment. And then Mark makes the choice, and again, remember, Mark's whole job is to be quick and snappy. Everything that Mark puts into this gospel is there for a very important reason. He doesn't worry about details that aren't that important, quote-unquote. He then immediately says, the centurion looks up at Jesus and says, surely this man was the son of God. This is massively significant. First of all, the first person in Mark's gospel to recognize the full divinity of Christ was a Gentile, not a Jew. A Gentile, someone who was not part of the Jewish faith and the Jewish race, okay, and would not have access to 
the Jewish faith necessarily. A Gentile. The moment that that curtain splits, the first person to see Jesus for who he is in Mark's gospel is someone who wasn't even Jewish. Further, the centurion is an incredibly unlikely character to come to this revelation. He wouldn't have studied any of the scriptures particularly. He wouldn't have cared. He wouldn't have hung out with Jewish people, so he wouldn't have had discussions with them about it. Yet he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God just by looking at him. Secondly, the centurion is not supposed to call anyone the Son of God unless it is the Roman Emperor, Caesar. The idea of calling anyone other than the Emperor Son of God was extremely blasphemous in Roman society and could well have ended in the centurion losing his job, possibly even imprisonment, maybe death. Yet he's brought to this moment, looking up at Jesus, now dead on a cross, and saying, this man, he was the son of God. A life-changing moment for the centurion, just by watching Jesus on the cross. And the first person in Mark's gospel to recognize Jesus as the son of God and put it in those words was someone who wasn't a Jew. This is important because it means that now Jesus is for everyone. The Messiah is not just for the Jewish people. The Messiah is there for everybody. This act that we are seeing is for everyone. Jesus gave his life. Jesus took on sin so that he could fulfill everything that was written in the Old Testament. He was the perfect spotless lamb, but he was more than the perfect spotless lamb. A lamb was not sufficient for a lifetime of sin. A lamb was sufficient for a one-off payment to God, essentially, to say, forgive me, I've done wrong. But it wasn't sufficient for life. And it had to be you that offered up the lamb if you wanted that forgiveness. Jesus was more than a lamb. He was a human being. Something that we struggle to understand. Jesus was and is fully and completely God. Part of the Trinity. One of the three. But he's also fully human. He lived as a human. And he died as a human. The law of the Old Testament fulfilled in that moment. God's saving work was fulfilled on the cross by Jesus. A monumental moment in history. God's saving work is for everyone. Across the world. Australia to Alaska. Baghdad to Bangladesh. Across the world. Jesus' death was for everyone. How far is the east from the west because that's how far God's removed us from our sin I'm going to give you two answers the first is infinitely far doesn't matter where you stand on the earth if you walk east you never end up west you always just go in a circle this is different to north and south if I'm on the south pole and I keep walking north eventually I, I, I reach north 
If I keep walking in a straight line, I'm now going south. There are no east and west poles. No matter where I stand, if I walk east, I walk east. And it never ends until I turn around and start walking west. So the first answer is infinitely. The second answer comes from a song that I absolutely love. And if you haven't listened to it, I really recommend you do. It's by Casting Crowns. How far is the east from the west? One scarred hand to the other. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Dan is going to pick this back up on Good Friday, I'm sure, as we reflect and take communion. And don't worry, Sunday's coming. It's normally the phrase you hear on Good Friday, but Sunday is coming. Jesus' lament on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, it ends in victory. But in this moment, whether Jesus came back to life or not, all of your sin, all of my sin, was put on Jesus forever. He took it away. And that's why we get passages in the Bible like Paul saying, I was crucified with Christ. Christ crucified with me, one and the same. So if you take away one thing from this today, take away this. God, Jesus, died for you. When God poured out his wrath, he didn't pour it out on you, he poured it out on Jesus. All you've got to do is recognize him as the son of God. And that wrath, that weight, that agony, it all goes. Because it was already poured out on Jesus. If you take away one thing, take away this. God loved you so much that he was willing to die a brutal, agonizing death. That at any moment, Jesus had the right to turn to his father and say, no, I'm done. And God would have sent an army of angels, but he didn't. He stuck it out. A paradox, an irony, that God's greatest act of love was the most brutal one. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. Let's pray as the band come back up. Jesus, I thank you for what you have done on the cross, for what you went through physically, emotionally, but perhaps most significantly spiritually as you took on the wrath and anger of the Father that we could be free. Thank you for that. And I pray that everyone here would get a renewed sense of that, that they would know that they have been forgiven because of that work. That if they are held down by the weight of their sin, by shame, they would understand that you have already paid the price. We just have to come to you and say, you are the son of God. Thank you that you are. And thank you that you did rise again. That this death wasn't permanent. The payment was, but the death wasn't. Showing that ultimately you win. And you will win. For you are God. Thank you. Let us uh, survey that wondrous cross. Let us remember that you, the light of the world, stepped down here into darkness. May we give back to you all the glory, honor, and power that is due your name. Hallelujah for you have won. Amen.